guys. Uh, so how I got connected, just so you know, uh, Pastor Scott is friends um, with my boss, Danny Bowers. I don't know if he has been here before, if you have uh, heard of him, but uh, Danny got me connected with Scott. So I'm excited to be here just with you guys this morning. Uh, a little bit about my story is I, uh, I was not raised uh, going to church. I was not a church person growing up. Um, so getting saved at the age of 18 um, was a big change in my life and, and an exciting transformation the Lord has done. Uh, after that, I moved up to a place called Hume Lake Christian Camps. You guys have heard of it. Um, and I lived there for a year. They have a discipleship program that I got to be a part of. Um, and after that, I moved up to Washington, uh, where I just finished my uh, bachelor degrees at Moody Bible Institute. Um, and then from there, the Lord opened some doors. He brought me back here to California and I'm currently a pastor over in Redwood City, um, so right in the middle of San Francisco and San Jose. Uh, I got to go home. I got to get to do ministry there, and so I'm excited just to be with you guys this morning. Um, but like I said, I lived in Washington for two years, uh, and in that moment, um, you go to college, and you have experiences that you expect to happen, right? You expect the freedom. You expect the independence. Uh, you expect the idea of living on your own for the first time, the excitement that that's all going to be. Um, there was an experience I had that I wasn't expecting to happen, um, and it was when I, I trusted a friend just maybe a little bit more than I should have. Uh, I had a buddy. I lived in a house of five or six guys, and one of them has spent uh, months training to be a whitewater rafting guide. And so uh, every weekend he would go out, he'd go to the Spokane River, because uh, that's where I lived in Washington, and he would uh, just practice training to be a white water rafting guide. And eventually he comes to our house and says, hey, for my final test, I get to lead a group on a white water rafting trip. And I'm allowed to invite friends and family uh, for free to come and join me like, to go white water rafting. And he's like, well, my family lives in California. Like, you guys are the closest friends I have. That's why I'm living with you. Would you guys like to come? And we're like, Heck yes, like of course, like white water rafting, it's exciting, we're pumped, uh, we're like, we'll take any opportunity just to go kind of have that adventure, um, and eventually one of us kind of looks at Josh, and we're like, so Josh, we're pumped about this, but how good are you as a guide? Like, just realistically, like, like how good, how confident are you feeling? He's like, I promise you guys are going to be safe, you're going to have fun, it's going to be a great trip, and we're like, perfect, Josh, we trust you, let's go do it. So the day rolls around, we show up to the river, uh, the water is freezing, so we have to go full wetsuits on, like booties, headgear, all of it, uh, this water is all melted snow, um, and we get into the boat, and like, before we even get in, like, it's just a bunch of college-age guys pumped about an adventure, so we're walking around, like, slapping each other's back, like, yes, like, we're gonna get it, it's gonna be awesome, like, we're just getting pumped, we're hyping each other up, we're like, playing around with the sticks, like, we're just having a fun time. Uh, we did not make a good first impression with the other people who were there training to be whitewater rafting guides. Our, our boat was the annoying one, but we were, we were as excited as you could be about a whitewater rafting trip. Um, and, and we get into the boat, and Josh is kind of giving us the rules, and he's giving us the idea, the layout for the day, how it's all going to look. Um, and we're just, we're pumped, we're hyped, we're, we're, we're getting as excited as we could be, and we're coming up to our first rapid. And he's like, all right, guys, when I say forward, I need you to go forward as hard as you can because if we hit this rapid too slow, like, it's, just, it's not going to be safe. So we have to hit it at a certain speed. And we're like, cool, dude, like, we'll do it. And so, so we get to the point, and he's like, forward. And all six of us guys put in every ounce of effort and strength we have 
into rowing this whitewater raft boat down the rapid. And we're going, and we're fully excited. We're, like, expecting everything to be great and happen. And out of the corner of my ear, I hear, I hear Josh go, huh, I've never hit this rapid this fast before. And I was like, I'm sorry, what happened? And then we hit this rapid so fast that every, all six of us, including the two guides, bounced out of the seats, up a couple feet in the air. Uh, the people on my side, we flew into the middle of the raft. So we were like, okay, we landed on the raft, we're fine. The people on the other side bounced straight out. And immediately, first rapid we hit, two guys are gone. They're in the water, the rapids takes one of them, and he shoots down the river. The other guy is swimming as hard as I've ever seen somebody swim against a current. And he is swimming, and he is stroking, and he's holding on to this paddle for dear life. And at one point, he sees uh, the guy, Josh's paddle, out in the water. And he's like, if I can grab his paddle, he'll pull me back in, and I'll be fine. And as he's, like, reaching out for the paddle, Josh notices what's happening, and he's like, in his mind, he's like, oh, if he grabs my paddle and I lose it, then everybody's screwed. Like, we can't have him grab my paddle. So he pulls it away. Like, last minute, his fingers are about to grab it. Josh pulls it away, and you just see the hopelessness in this guy's eyes as the current takes him and shoots him down the river. And so the rest of us kind of get in the boat, and we're, like, sitting back up, and we're like, like, Josh, what do we, what do, we do? Like, we just lost two guys. And he's like, start paddling. And we're like, what? And he's like, we have to catch them before the next rapid or else they're going to be like really injured. And we're like, oh my gosh, like, okay. So we start paddling down this river. Uh, eventually we actually end up catching up to both guys. We throw them back in the boat. And, and the one of the guys is just sitting there in the middle holding his paddle and just like nodding his head. And we're like, Zach, like, you all right, man? Like, you good? And he's like, I thought I was dead. And we're like, what? And he's like, I genuinely didn't think I was going to make it today. <laughs> and you could just see like this hopelessness and like in this fear in his eyes of what was going to happen. Uh, and the rest of the trip, our hype level went from 100 to about a 15 real fast. And we took every rapid, not going as hard as we could. We're like, well, you know, maybe if we go too hard, Josh is going to knock a few of us out again. So, so let's lighten it up. Let's not go as fast. Let's not go as hard. Um, and eventually we get through this whole trip. But uh, the reality is, is that when we were in this moment, we were promised one thing. We expected something to happen. And when it didn't come to fruition, um, we lost hope. And we kind of lost hope in Josh's ability to guide us. And we lost hope in what it is that he could do. Um, and so today is this idea of hopelessness that I want to talk with you guys about. And it's this idea of what happens when believers in a 21st century meet a supernatural God and then lose hope in him. Because uh, hopelessness, uh, what I've learned and what I've noticed, is never the primary response. It's always secondary. We can't feel hopeless if we have never felt hope before. So a lot of times what happens is people have these encounters with Jesus and they have all this hope. And then something happens and we start to lose hope in what it is that he can do. And we start to question, and we start to doubt, and we start to wonder uh, if God is all that he has made himself out to be. And so today I want to look at a passage where, where this, um, this just becomes very clear to me on how it is that we respond, but only uh, how it is that God responds to our hopelessness. And so my hope today uh, actually is not that you would leave um, feeling like God is going to answer every question that you ever have. Um, my hope is not that you're going to leave uh, expecting that at every turn it's going to go exactly the way that you want it or exactly the way that you expect it. My hope is that as we leave here today, that you, in moments of hopelessness and moments of doubt, will not lose your wonder, 
in who God is and what he could do. So if you're with me, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 18. Um, that's where we're going to be spending our time today. Uh, I'm going to focus in on verses 9 through 15, but I'm going to read 1 through 8 first just to build some context. Just so we have a little bit of an idea of what it is we're going into. So chapter 18 verse 1 says this, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Marme, and he sat at the door of his tent at the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold him, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from his tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Uh, so immediately we are introduced to a couple of different characters. Uh, when it says appeared to him, him is a man by the name of Abraham. Now Abraham is, is crucial to the Jewish story because he is the father of the entire Jewish nation. Uh, everything that Israel has become is rooted in who Abraham was. Abraham is a man who is married to a woman named Sarah. And out of the blue, God kind of just chooses and calls him. We have no reason to, as to why. Uh, we have, there's nothing that Abraham did that led us to believe that he was somehow better or more righteous or more prepared. It just seems that God wanted to choose Abraham, and so God chose Abraham. And he called him and said, hey, leave your home, leave your family, leave your father, like, and follow me into this land, and I'm going to give you this nation. I'm going to give you all this land uh, as long as you follow me. And while Abraham is considered a man of faithfulness, Abraham was far from perfect. Uh, often scripture records him as somebody who would lie. Uh, he was someone who cheated other people. And in two different circumstances, he actually risked his own wife to protect his own skin. He was afraid of getting killed. And so he just said, hey, Sarah, pretend to be my sister so that nobody kills you. And then went ahead and Sarah off to somebody else. And so regardless of what Abraham did, regardless of who he was, he was still someone that God called and still someone that God called faithful. And these three men who appear, uh, we really don't know exactly who they are. Scholars have guessed, scholars have speculated, they have tried to figure it out. Some believe it is uh, Jesus and two angels, some believe it's the Father, Son, and the Spirit, some believe it is a, a manifestation of Yahweh just all together. Like we, we really don't know exactly who these three men are. But we do know is that this text in Abraham identify them as Lord. And they identify at least one, if not all three of them, as God. And when Abraham recognizes the divine presence that called him, he greets God with respect and submission by bowing before him. His first response every time, regardless of his past, regardless of the mistakes that Abraham makes, meets God in a place of submission, meets God in a place of reverence, meets God in a place of worship. And it continues, and, it's, and, it, bleh. and he said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly to the tent and Sarah and said, quick, three sehas of fine flour needed to make cake. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And he took curds of milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So Abraham sees them, bows before them, and then uh, for us it would seem like he would just go completely out of his way to make sure that these three visitors were comfortable. Would go out and get them food, uh, serve them, make sure there was something to drink, something to wash their feet on. Um, and for Abraham, this is actually very normal. Culturally, in the ancient Near East, this is how wanderers uh, in Israel would have greeted each other. 
uh, would have acknowledged the presence of somebody having to walk, having to travel. This is normal. This isn't normal for us today. Uh, As I read this, I really thought about it. I was like, okay, if I was at home and my parents saw three strangers on the door, like on our driveway, my dad would not run out to them. He would not beg them to come in and eat our food. He would not run to my mom and say, hey, you need to start cooking right now and get something going. He would not run and get water and start washing their feet and then just sit there as they ate, waiting for them to be done. Like this just it isn't normal to our context. It's not normal to what we're used to. Uh, to Abraham, it was very normal for him to do this. But the other part that I notice is that Abraham meets God in a place of service. So immediately we see Abraham come to before the divine presence. He's like, hey, I'm going to bow. I'm going to respect you. And I'm immediately going to beg you that you would let me serve. And this isn't really what I'm talking about today, but, but my, as I was reading this, my prayer just became, man, what if church looked like this? What if people came in on Sundays, people came in Monday through Friday, uh, not only expecting to be in the presence of the divine God and not only coming there to submit and to worship, but begging God, hey, would you let me serve? Would you let me be a part of the work that you're doing here? Would you let me just help you, help somebody? What would, would begging to be a part of service change the way that we view church today. And that's how we see Abraham greet God in the first couple of verses of this chapter. And then uh, God is actually going to change the focus, and he's going to take the focus off of Abraham, he's going to put the focus onto Sarah. And now Sarah is Abraham's wife, and outside of her being the wife of Abraham, we don't know much about her story. It's not like Abraham had one story and Sarah had another, and then they beautifully intertwined, and that's when God called. It was, no, God called Abraham, who was already married to Sarah, and said, go, and Sarah went with him. So we don't really know much about Sarah. We don't really know much about um, her background, uh, but we do know that she is just as intricate and just as important to a promise that God had made Abraham. And it says this, and so God, uh, they said to him, to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and your Sarah wife will have a son. Uh, And this is important, because in the beginning, when God first called Abraham, uh, he made Abraham a promise. He's like, I'm going to make this big nation out of you. I'm going to bless you. Your nation is going to bless the world. It's going to bless all the other people. Um, Specifically, it says this. This is coming out of chapter 12. Uh, Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, and the Lord told him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So God makes this promise to Abraham when he's 75 years old. said, hey, I'm going to make a nation out of you. It's going to be this big. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be important. Um, And this is all rooted in a patriarchal culture, which means that to have that, Abraham needed to have a son. And at one point, Abraham becomes so desperate to have a son, to fulfill this promise, uh, that he actually uh, has a son with Sarah's handmaid or her her maid uh, to try to get this promise going already. And God has to stop them. He has to call them out and say, hey, what you're doing is not part of my plan. You're going to have a son through Sarah. I'm going to bring my nation through Sarah. And it was very specific, and it was a very specific call that Sarah had that she was going to be, in a way, uh, the mother of this nation. 
And so God makes his covenant with Abraham and he makes this declaration. Um, and the Bible doesn't often give us really clear ideas on timing, on what it is. Like a lot of times we'll say like immediately or the next day or in some time, like it's not super clear always, but in Abraham's case it is. And it says when Abraham, in chapter 17, it says when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, uh, and that was a chapter before. So now we're in a place where God had made a promise to Abraham and Sarah at the age of 75 and 24 years had gone by and nothing has happened. No promises has been filled, no fruits have been seen, no uh, blessings have come out of what God had said he was going to do. And so God in this moment is reiterating a promise that he had already made to them. Uh, and I'm 23, so I literally cannot understand what it is like to wait for something for 24 years. Like that's, that's just as far outside of my comprehension as it could be. Like I'm that close, but like I really, I really don't get it. Um, but I know what it like, but we've all experienced on what it's like to wait on that one thing. And Sarah and Abraham have been waiting for 24 years. And time, time is hard and time is painful. And so God says, hey, I'm going to reiterate this promise. I'm going to come back. Uh, you're going to have a son. And then it shows Sarah's response to that. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. Like I said, they're 99 at this point. And the way of the woman has ceased with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after, am I, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? So Sarah hears this promise and she hears God say the same thing that he's probably been saying for 24 years. And the time has built in the sense of hopelessness and despair of what God is going to do. And she starts to laugh. And the word in the Hebrew for laugh actually could be translated as mocked. So Sarah in her pain and in her hopelessness mocks God for the promise that he makes. He's like, she's like, I'm not going to wait around another 24 years for you to do what you've already said you're going to do. I'm not going to build up this hope. I'm not going to build up this expectancy. I'm not going to lose hope again. And so I see Sarah here in this moment kind of do the same thing that me and my friends did on the rafting trip where it's like, man, like, Josh, you said we're going to be okay. And like, you said we can go at this rapid full speed, but we're not going to. Because we've seen what happens when we put our hope into something a little bit too much. And, and we've seen what happens when we trust you a little bit more than maybe we should have. I don't want to fall out the boat again. Sarah doesn't want to lose hope again. So instead, she just mocks God and says, no, I'm not going to believe what it is that you have to say. And so I, and, and I've always wondered what made this promise so hard for her to hear again for the 24th year in a row. Well, Sarah says, shall I have this pleasure? See, to Sarah, having a child was more than just a responsibility. It was more than just a duty. It was more than just a job that God had given her. It was actually something that was going to bring her joy. And it was actually something that she was waiting for and she was excited about and she was looking forward to. And she's like, man, this is going to give me like so much life and excitement. This is a good thing that God has promised. And it's going to be a pleasure and he hasn't answered and sometimes the good things that God promised us have the most painful journeys. Like I said, I went to Washington, and I lived there for two years, and I went to a school up there called Moody Bible Institute. Uh, and that was their second campus. Their, their primary, their first one is over in Chicago. You've heard of it. 
Um, but one day I'm there, I'm doing school, and I, and I get an email from Moody. And I kind of like scan it really fast. I'm like, ah, oh, this isn't important. I'm going to read this later. Like I'm in the middle of something. So I just kind of moved it aside. Uh, not two minutes later did I get a text from a friend of mine in Chicago saying, dude, is your school closing down? And I was like, well, let me just go check that super unimportant email that I just ignored that I might need to actually read now. And I read through this email, and it was from Chicago saying that they were closing down the Spokane campus. Uh, and in that moment, it was kind of like that, wow, that like, I don't really know how to respond to this. Like, this is a, a surprise I wasn't expecting. About 10 minutes after that, I get another email uh, from our campus dean in Spokane saying, hey, you all received an email. Can you meet at our campus in two hours? What I found out later was they actually weren't supposed to email us. That was an accident. We weren't supposed to find out the way that we did that our school was getting shut down. Uh, the staff and the dean had wanted to tell us themselves. Uh, but they had actually only gotten that information an hour before we did. So then two hours later, the whole student body gets together and all the faculty get together and they kind of start talking us through uh, all the stuff that's happening. And, and in their email, they're very formal, they're very apathetic. It just seemed like it was another email they would send about anything. And they're like, hey, the school's closing down, we're sorry. Uh, if you're at Spokane right now, you have three options. You can go to Chicago, you can go online, or you can go to a new school. Thank you, have a good day. Like that was kind of the gist of the email. And so we show up to this meeting with all the faculty, with all of staff, and I look around and I see students and faculty together experiencing a sense of hopelessness. Because for many of the faculty, they had built roots there and they were, uh, had just bought houses and they had families and they had mortgages and I, they didn't have time to process before interacting with us. So I saw the pain and I saw the hopelessness in their eyes. I heard it uh, in their words. They talked with us and I looked at my fellow students and I saw them breaking down in tears because many of them had got, heard God specifically say, hey, go to Spokane. And then they went and they found great churches and they were plugged in with good communities and they were doing ministry and they were serving faithfully and all these things that God had promised were starting to come through and then out of nowhere, our school just closes down. And I saw what would happen when there was a good thing that God had told people to do get taken away and there was genuine hopelessness. Like, I, like I don't want to go to Chicago. Chicago can't be better than Spokane. Like, I don't want to go online. It can't be better than having my real faculty and teachers and peers with me. Hey, I can't just find a new school. I've put in three years here. Like, I'm not going to, I can't start over. And there was a sense of hopelessness all throughout our school. And I saw it. And that is, I believe, where Sarah's at right now, that she is being told a promise of something good, something that she desires, something that she wants. And she's laughing and mocking because she's like, I'm not, I'm not going to live into that. I'm not going to lose my hope again. So then verse 13 goes, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now, if I were you and you have a Bible with you, I would really circle, underline, highlight that word hard. Because that word hard actually can be more accurately translated as wonderful. And so God hears Sarah laugh, hears her mocking him, and he asks her a simple question in turn. Hey, is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? 
Because what had happened was that Sarah had created this mindset, created this picture where her having a son, her having a family with Abraham became something too good and too great for God to do. And it became too wonderful of an outcome and became too wonderful of a life for God to put his hand in. And so what happens is when we do this, when we lose hope, we start to believe that there's something out there or there's some part of our life, there's something that we're asking God to do and it becomes too good for him to do in our hearts. It becomes too good for him to do in our lives. And when God hears this, he asks her this question, is anything too wonderful for her, for him to do? And then instead of shaming her, instead of demanding faithfulness to Sarah, instead of reprimanding her and calling her out, he says, the promise again. And he reiterates the same thing. Sarah, you've lost hope, but I'm going to come back in a year and you're going to have a son. Sarah, you've lost hope, but the promises that I made to you 24 years ago are not dependent upon the hope that you have. Um, so like I also had said, I was raised in a home um, that's not churched. If someone asked me when I was 16 or 17 years old what a church plant was, I would have assumed it was something like this. It was just a plant in a church. I would have, it would have never meant in my mind what a church plant is. So when I got saved, there was, there was, everything was new. I was learning about Jesus. I was learning about scripture. People are saying, hey, read this. I'm like, why? And they're like, because you should. And I was like, oh, okay. And I would read it and I would learn. I'm like, this is incredible. And I started to experience what life with the Spirit was like. And I started hearing about the promises of eternity and salvation and redemption and everything. It was this beautiful picture of like, this is what I get to live into now. And then the more I realized that, the more I thought about the fact that I have an older sister and a younger brother who don't know that. And I have cousins and I have family members and I have aunts and uncles who don't know who Jesus is. And I was like, well, that can't, I was like, that can't be the case. Like, okay, like, I'm going to do the one thing I know how to do, and I'm just going to start praying, and I'm going to start talking. And so I did, and for years, I prayed. I would pray for hours. I prayed for my family. I prayed for my cousins. I would reach out with messages. I would uh, try to subtly start conversations. I would hope that my life had changed so drastically in the way that I lived that they would ask questions about it. Like, I was just doing everything that I could do, and after five years, nothing had changed. God hadn't moved any hearts. God hadn't softened any conversations. God hadn't brought any people into their lives. Every prayer that I had made and asked God was like, no, <laughs> I hadn't done anything. And I get to the point where I remember, I remember writing in my journal, God, you have no desire, you have no intentions, and you don't have the power to save my family. I'm done. And I closed my journal, and I was like, I'm still going to follow you. Like, you and I are still going to be good, but I'm going to stop praying for my family because clearly five years have gone by, and you haven't done anything, so you can't. Uh, and in that moment, God spoke three words very quickly to me, and he said, you're Sarah. And I sat, and I thought, and I was like, you're right. Like, I have come before you, and I've mocked you, and I've said, you're not powerful enough. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. Like, everything that you say that you are, you're not. Because the idea of me actually spending eternity with my family has become too wonderful of an idea. It's become too good for me to believe that it's actually going to happen. And I was checked and God convicted me of like, okay, when I'm in my hopelessness of my family, have I lost also my wonder and what God can really do? 
And the truth is, I'm not promised my family salvation. That's not something that I am guaranteed. Uh, and there are a lot of things in our lives that we're not guaranteed. We're not guaranteed comfort. We're not guaranteed financial security. We're not guaranteed uh, a perfect family. Uh, we're actually promised a lot of suffering. We're actually promised persecution. Like, we're promised hardships, but, but the New Testament is full of promises for us as well, and I just want to read a few of them for you. Uh, Acts 1.8 says this, But you shall receive the power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in both Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Is it too wonderful to think that you could be a witness in your job? That you could be filled with the power that regardless of if your job respects you or not, that regardless of if people listen to you or not, that you can still be the person that declares how good God is? Uh, Romans 6.14, But you shall have, uh, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Is it too wonderful to believe that you could actually be forgiven for the habitual sin that you just can't give up? Maybe for how easy it is for you to gossip or for you to lie or for it is to you to steal. Is it too wonderful to think that God could actually forgive you for that? That by submission to the cross and submission to Jesus means without a doubt there is forgiveness. Galatians 5 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is it too wonderful to believe that you could have self-control in your family and in your marriage? Is it too wonderful to think that you could have joy or peace here in the Bay Area where everything around us is telling us that what we're doing is wrong? Is there anything in your life that is too wonderful for the Lord to do? Uh, Verse 15, I'm going to close with this, says, But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And God said, no, but you did laugh. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if this is maybe the best interpretation, but the way that I read this is God is trying to get Sarah just to come and acknowledge her hopelessness. He's like, hey, Sarah, you did laugh. She's like, no, I did. Everything's good. Everything's great. I'm fine. I'm not laughing at you, God. I'm not mocking you. Like, totally, you know, you're going to come back in a year and I'm going to have a son. Like, I didn't do what I just said that, like, I just did. And God's like, no, you did laugh. Like, no, you did lose hope. But again, his response was never shame. It was never anger. It was, hey, I'm going to reiterate the promise that I already made to you. I'm going to come back in a year, and you are going to have a son. I'm going to come back in a year, and I am going to fulfill the promise that I made to you 24 years ago. So my hope As we leave today, I'm going to pray for you guys. I'm going to pray for the offering. But my hope is as we just leave this building, as we go into our day-to-day lives, will we not lose wonder in what God can do? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that the cross and the promise of the cross means that we get to stand firm in your grace. We get to stand firm in your truth. We get to stand firm knowing that we are not alone, but that we Uh, Lord, we have been called your children. We've been called uh, a royal priesthood. We have been called holy. So Lord, I pray for these people in this room. God, would you give them hope? Would you give them wonder of what you can do? Would you give this city the wonder of what it is to live life with you, Jesus? Would we declare that goodness? And as we take this offering, would it be for the benefit of this city, God? 
It would be for the benefit of the people who need to know who you are. God, who are desperately looking in other places, Jesus, we pray that Rock Bible Church would be a place that turned them back to you. Lord, we thank you and we love you. We pray all this in your good, holy, and powerful name. Amen.